You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, friends, becoming a Christian is an epic thing. And it being an epic thing has nothing to do with our conversion experience. That's not what I'm referring to. The epic piece of becoming a Christian is the fact that we are brought by God's power from death to life. It's a miracle. We are brought from the power of Satan to God. We are delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. That's epic. In Christ, by faith, we have the forgiveness of sins. We have been declared righteous. We will be found just on the last day because Christ, our Savior, is just. And we know that in Christ, even now, we have eternal life. And we will one day enjoy that life with God and with each other. That's epic. But then we come to Christ and we start to live the Christian life. And this side of the resurrection, let's be real, much of it feels mundane. Much of it is very ordinary. We look up and we find ourselves arguing with other Christians about things that we never thought we'd argue about. You've been there, so have I. It's like, really, this is what we're going to do? We're going to argue about what we eat and drink? We're going to argue about whether we observe this holiday or not? We're going to argue about whether it's okay to watch a ball game or throw a Frisbee on Sunday afternoon? That's what we're going to do? We're going to go in on whether our kids go to public school or private school or we school them at the house? As mundane and silly as much of this might seem, it's important that we realize much bigger things are at stake in those conversations. Things that are way upstream should affect how we interact and how we have conversation. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Romans chapter 14. We are continuing on in our journey through this wonderful letter. We're going to be looking at Romans 14, 1 to 12 today. Normally, I do a little bit more of context work. So if you're kind of new with us and you've not been making your way through this series, we're just going to trust the Lord. I'm going to assume a little bit of familiarity with Romans. And then there's always the sermons on the website, should you avail yourselves of those. But just briefly, beginning in Romans 12, many in the room know that Paul, having for 11 chapters expounded the gospel, the good news of Christ the reality of the law and the gospel and the eternal, unshakable hope that we have in Christ, Paul pivots to talk about how we now shall live as Christians. How do we live? That's Romans 12 and following. And in our text today, he continues to do that. It's going to help us to know the will of God for our lives in terms of how we would live together in the body of Christ. And he takes up an important subject. Us 
judging one another and looking down on each other over issues of conscience and matters of wisdom. When we start to think through these things in the words that Paul has written, it becomes clear that yet again, he's reading our mail. That's because human beings haven't changed. And that's also because the church hasn't changed. If you ever, this is kind of an aside comment, if you ever find yourself falling into the trap where you're like, man, we just need to go back to the good old days. The first century church, man, that's when it was pure. Read the New Testament. Read the epistles. The church has always been the same in that it has always been comprised of sinners. And so we have always needed this kind of instruction. And Christ is a savior. He will keep us. All is well. And it's good that we would think about how we live and love and treat one another. So let's look to the text. Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. Listen as I read. This is the word of God. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinion. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, will give an account of himself to God. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. I plan to preach this message in three parts. So part one will be the text in three points. Don't let this confuse you. Part one is the text in three points. Part two, I want to offer just some additional application and make some pastoral comments. And part three will be a conclusion. So we'll begin with part one, the text in three points. And point one of part one, for all the copious note takers in the room, just some overarching thoughts on the passage, overarching thoughts on the passage. In Romans 14, through the early verses of Romans 15, Paul establishes that we as Christians are to mutually bear with one another. If you understand that, you've understood the text pretty well. We in Christ on account of Christ, 
are to mutually bear with one another. We are called to patience, charity. And by that, I don't mean giving money away. I mean being charitable in your spirit toward other people. We are called to gentleness. We're called to mercy. Paul also writes of these things in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10. This is not the only place in the New Testament where we see this kind of subject matter handled. Now, the the issues over which we might get worked up, those might change. The things that we debate about, those might change. But the principles remain the same. The principles that Paul lays down, bearing with one another, patience and gentleness, charity and mercy. These things are important because let's be honest. We slide from difference of opinion into contentious and uncomfortable real quick. This is how we roll. Some of us are argumentative. We press. We don't let things go. Others of us are avoiders. Disagreement arises. It's uncomfortable. And so we just kind of stuff it and evade. And all the while, resentment resentment and bitterness just builds. And all of us, in our various ways, all of us are defensive. This is important stuff if we're going to live together in peace and unity. There is a special obligation for the more mature, those that Paul calls the strong. There's an obligation on the strong to bear with the less mature, to bear with the weak, as Paul calls them. There is so much damage done to the tender among us if they are not treated with gentleness and kindness as they're being brought along in the faith. Remember that. So much damage done to the tender if they are not brought along with gentleness and patience in the things of the faith. And at the same time, it is not appropriate for any of us to pass judgment on a brother or sister over matters of wisdom and conscience. This is something, according to the Apostle Paul, that the weak, the immature, are particularly prone to do. Pass judgment. So listen to to me here. To have a bunch of scruples about life is not inherently godly. To have a bunch of scruples is not inherently godly. Being geeked up over things not clearly defined in God's word, and then binding the consciences of others on those things is actually a mark of immaturity, not a mark of maturity. So that's just some overarching thoughts for us, point one. Point two, the weak and the strong. Point two, the weak and the strong. We're going to look at verses one through four. If you put your eyes on verse 1, we see that the weak in faith are to be welcomed in the church. God be praised. The church is not just for the strong. The church is not just for the mature. Just like we rejoice over the fact that the Lord's Supper is not for the perfect, but for the weak. The Lord is merciful. And so the weak in faith are to be welcomed into the church, but 
Quarreling over opinions is not the purpose of that welcome. That matters. So let's just say a few things at the outset. There is a difference between quarreling over opinions and genuinely engaging over how we understand Scripture. Those two things are not one and the same. Genuine engagement over how we understand Scripture should happen all the time. Arguing about opinions and wisdom calls, that's different. Paul also is not saying that we shouldn't draw lines over doctrine. Doctrine really matters. You read the New Testament epistles, you see that that is undoubtedly the case. And in Romans 16, Paul's going to write these words, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So he is not saying don't draw lines over doctrine. What he's talking about in the context, opinions, right, represent matters of wisdom, matters of conscience, and matters of conduct that are not clearly defined in Scripture or are necessarily inferred from Scripture. That's what Paul is writing about. Now, here's the really sticky part. And this, I think, is where most of our issues at CBC would come from. So there are high-level principles that are clearly stated in Scripture or necessarily inferred from Scripture, but at the level of implementation, at the level of living out those high-level principles, there's latitude. We can agree on the general principle but yet disagree over how to practically and functionally live that principle out. And that is the rub. There isn't disagreement here in this congregation over very clear high-level matters. There isn't. But there can be all kinds of disagreement over how to practically and functionally live out those high-level general convictions. And it is the, the weak in faith, the less mature, says Paul, who tend to argue and quarrel with other saints over such matters. And that is not good. Verse 2, Paul gives an example, a matter about which Christians might disagree, a matter over which they might debate. One Christian, the strong one in Paul's example, thinks that he can eat anything. The weak Christian eats only vegetables. Now, we're not given details on this as to what exactly is going on, but it seems that there are people in the church of Rome who are convicted that they should only eat vegetables and never eat meat in order to honor the Lord. Now, this obviously is going even further than the Old Testament laws went because meat was not forbidden to Israel, even under the Old Covenant. But this is something different than just old covenant food laws. But the point is not in the details. The point is that the weak Christian thinks that he is bound to laws and standards to which he is not bound. That's the point. And Paul says that such a Christian is weak in faith, meaning the weak Christian 
does not trust the clear teaching of Scripture when it comes to freedom in various matters. In this case, it pertains to food. Right? We know in Acts chapter 10 that the Lord had lifted all prohibitions on eating foods that were formerly unclean. And then in 1 Timothy 4, Paul writes these words, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So we know those things about food. In this case, the example Paul gives is food, and that maybe doesn't really hit in our day, in our context. We don't argue a lot over food. Now, we got a lot of people that are like nutrition fanatics, right, that might talk in moral ways about food, but we're not, we're not considering those things as tests of fidelity to Jesus. Like if you don't eat keto, you're not a legit Christian or something. We don't do that. But let me try to bring this to our level to give us a sense of, of the spirit of what's going on here, what Paul's pointing out. Think if someone were to open up a bottle of wine at the church picnic and have a glass with their meal. Some would object to the idea of having alcohol at a church function. That's clearly unwise. Others might even consider such conduct sinful. And then others would have no concerns. Right? In a group this size, that's true. There are probably people in every one of those categories. This gives us a window into the kind of issues at hand in the church at Rome. Some were stricken in their consciences over eating meat, and others had zero concern. How does Paul exhort these two subsets of people? Look at verse 3. He gets right to the inappropriate tendencies of both. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? You see it at the end of the verse. For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed those who abstain. God has welcomed those who eat. The error of knowledge is to hold those who don't know in contempt. And the error of the uninformed is to condemn those who aren't affected by their own personal convictions. Paul's point in verse 3 is that if you either despise or condemn your brother or sister over a matter of wisdom, you have rejected the one whom God has welcomed. Don't do that. Verse 4. In particular, when it comes to passing judgment on others in the church, Paul writes these words. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. He will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Let this inform our posture toward one another. All of the members of Covenant Baptist Church are God's treasured ones. Amen? Amen. We all serve Jesus. He is our master. Neither the strong who look down on the weak, nor the weak who condemn the strong have any authority, really. We for our parts, assume far too much if we condemn anything in a fellow servant of Christ because it does not please us. It is not our prerogative to prescribe what another saint can do or not do. That belongs to the Lord alone as he has revealed his law and his word. 
let this inform our posture toward one another as well, that Jesus has justified us. All of us, as his disciples, stand only in his power, only in his grace toward us. He and only he is the one who makes any of us stand. So all of the saints, whether weak or strong in faith, belong to him. And he will uphold us all, whether weak or strong. And so, we should assume well of our brothers and sisters. We should assume well of them because they are in Christ Jesus. We should hope well of them and for them because we know that Christ will complete the good work that he has begun in them. May that inform the ways in which we treat one another. Living unto God in verses 5 to 12 is where Paul turns, which is our third point. Living unto God, verses 5 through 12. So in verses 5 and 6, Paul now adds another example of a matter about which Christians might disagree. The observance of special days. Now, this clearly seems to be Old Testament feast days that are in view. The weak were observing certain days, whereas the strong did not observe them. The days being observed, of course, were no longer necessary with the coming of Christ, but the weaker, less mature saints in Rome did not yet have a robust understanding of this reality or of their liberty that they had in Christ. But again, notice Paul's posture. He says that it's good, end of verse 5, that every person be convinced in their own mind and act according to their own conscience. That's a good thing. It's not heavy-handed. It's not whipping people into line. There's a better way. Verse 6, the weak observe days and refrain from eating meat out of a desire to honor the Lord. You see that? And did so with thankfulness to God. The strong, likewise, did not observe days and ate meat out of a desire to honor the Lord and did so with thankfulness to God. So Paul's word to both groups of people, to the weak and the strong, the less mature and the more mature, is, this, is simply this. Look, both of you, all of you, desire to love, serve, and honor God. All of you desire to do that with thankfulness in your hearts toward him. And therefore even though you disagree about how best to do that, you are to love and respect one another. That's a good word. Whether you're weak or whether you're strong, whether you're less mature or more mature, this is true of the saints. We all desire to honor, love, and serve God, and we, all, we desire to do that with thankfulness and gratitude in our hearts, yet we may disagree about how best to do that in every scenario. But let us love each other, and let us respect one another, and let us always be hopeful for one another, because Christ has us, and he will keep us, and we will stand in him at the end of it all. I want to continue to make a few 
notes of clarification because the temptation, again, is always to hear what's not being said. So just track with me for a second. Paul in no way is encouraging doctrinal indifference as though the truth doesn't matter. Because that would be dumb to conclude that. Frankly, that would be silly to conclude that doctrine doesn't matter because, well, you know, conscience and all those things. He does refer to one group as strong and the other as weak. And obviously, he would therefore clearly desire that the weak would grow strong, that the less mature would become mature, clearly. And there is plenty of ink spilled elsewhere in the New Testament regarding not returning to the observance of types and shadows now that Christ has come. So these matters of days and eating and drinking, while the, we're going to think about this in a week or so, the kingdom of Christ is about way more than that stuff. May we never go back to living that way, thinking that that's what God requires now that Christ, the point of it all, has come. That's real stuff. It's meaningful and it matters. But yet, there's this posture of patience and gentleness as those who don't yet understand are brought along. And there's a lot of love and charity and patience amongst the saints as those who don't yet understand are brought along. It is not that these matters of eating and drinking or days and feasts and the like are insignificant. It is not that learning and maturation don't need to occur. It's simply that Paul is encouraging charity and mutual respect toward one another on account of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 7 to 9, Paul continues to ground what he's saying. He says, none of us live or die to ourselves. We belong to Christ in life and death. He died and he rose again so that this would be the case. And we therefore live in him, we live unto him, and we live for him. Paul had just said, who are you to pass judgment on somebody else's servant? We're all the servants of Christ, therefore we ought not judge each other. He goes even further to say that we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. You've heard that somewhere. The blood of the Son of God bought us. With his life, he purchased us. We are Christ's. So, what in the world would we be doing? Despising and judging one another as brothers and sisters in him. We serve him, we belong to him, but then we're going to beat each other up over matters of wisdom and conscience. Doesn't make sense, does it? Not at all. Verses 10 to 12, Paul again addresses both groups. To the weak, less mature, he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? To the strong, he says, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Very simple what he's doing here. I'll say more about it. But the thought of the judgment seat should evoke in us the greatest humility and should cause us to pump the brakes when we get worked up over things going on in the lives of others. We ought not act like that. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. In short, 
We are not to judge one another because Christ alone sits on the judgment seat. Period. It is absurd that we would ever seek to sit in the place of Christ and judge the conscience of another human being. That we would ever assume that we can ascend to that throne and preside over the consciences of our brothers and sisters is wrong. As we look forward to the judgment, when we will stand before Jesus, one of the things that should be produced in us is the greatest kind of humility. Because on that day, we know this, on that day, if we were to stand in ourselves, if we were to come and present to the Lord our merit and our works, we would be ruined. The only way we will stand is to stand in Christ by faith. That's what it is to be a Christian. If you're here today and you're newer to Christianity, or you're here today and you're with family, it's the holiday season, and you're not even sure what this Christianity thing is about. It seems weird. It's kind of cultish. We've read some things out of a bulletin today. What is this all about? At the most basic fundamental level, the Christian faith is this. God is, he made us, he's holy, he's righteous, and we have rebelled against him. He has given us a law that is the greatest standard in the history of the world in terms of righteousness, and we don't have it. And we don't believe for one second that we can ever do what is necessary to be reconciled to him. We don't believe for a second that we can do what it would take to stand before him with any confidence in ourselves. We believe that Jesus Christ is our whole and only righteousness, and we receive what he did by faith. Whole righteousness meaning he's all of it. Only righteousness meaning there is no other righteousness on which we can stand. Christianity is not about being good or good enough. It is about trusting the one who was perfect for us and died in our place. And so, given that that's what we believe, we should be the most humble people on planet Earth. Not just toward outsiders, though we should be, but toward one another as fellow debtors to grace and mercy. Let's treat each other that way. That's what Paul's driving at here. What kind of effect would considering the judgment seat have on our treatment of each other? Ask yourself that question. We would be more concerned with our own conduct and our own sin than we would ever be about the sin and the conduct of somebody else. Would we not? There is not a matter of counseling or pastoral care in the history of our congregation in which this reality does not hold. That if the parties involved were more concerned and were more aware of their own sin than they were the sin of the other person, things would be so much better. We are always so prone to see the sin of everyone else and not see our own sin. If we really consider the judgment seat of Christ, we would not be sharpshooters looking for imperfection, looking for things that need refining in other people with this kind of exacting spirit and tone. We wouldn't walk around looking for specks in other people's eyes all the time. 
We deal with our own house and the logs in our own eyes before we would do those kinds of things. We would seek to help our brothers and sisters, but never to judge them. If we really live in light of the judgment seat of Christ and the ground upon which we would stand in that day, and we believe that Christ is our only hope, we'll be charitable and gracious and merciful and patient as the day is long. May it be. May it be. So that's all part one, the text in three points. Part two, I want to offer some additional application. So I want us to think well, and I want to offer some pastoral comments. So at the outset here, really important, everything that I'm about to say, here is how I want you and us to hear it. Please don't miss this. Everything that I'm about to say is said this way. Covenant Baptist Church, what we are doing, let's do it all the more. You hear me? What we are doing, let's do it all the more. This is not meant to be just a word of like rebuke and we're all terrible and let's just leave out, leave out of here full of shame and guilt. That is not what I mean to do. What we're doing, let's do it all the more. If we lean into what Paul has written here and we take these things to heart, we would all calm down a lot. We would. We wouldn't be warped out of our frames nearly as often. And the church would be even safer for everybody. And that's not because we're just cool with people sinning. That's always the objection. It's like, well, yeah, it's safe because we just must be, you know, we just kind of comfortable with sin. No. It's safe because we would take these things to heart and we would treat one another in the ways that we're considering. So I have several points here, really three, of pastoral comments and further application. Number one, again, I'm giving a lot of subset points today. I apologize for that. Number one, I want to talk about maturity and immaturity. Let's consider maturity and immaturity. I don't know that we define this well. We have notions of what a mature Christian looks like that often aren't biblically very well defined, and the opposite is true. So starting here, we've already done this, but let's just double down. Christ is our righteousness. We start there. We're all debtors to grace and mercy. There is nothing we understand that we have not been given, right? Anything that we clearly understand is God's grace and kindness to us. May we never boast or be arrogant. Sanctification is God's work, ultimately. We participate, amen, God is the one who does the work of sanctification, and we are all in different places. That's clear. So let's talk about maturity. The more mature we become, the more patient and merciful we will be toward the weak. I'm going to say that again. The more mature we become, the more patient and merciful we will be toward the weak. So particularly, if you sit here today, and you've been a Christian for some time, you have a, a good handle on primary and even secondary doctrines of the faith, and you can even do that kind of theological triage so you know what I'm talking about right now. You've got that kind of theological equipment. You know theology. You've read some things. If you sit here today, and those things are true of you, ask yourself, when I engage with my brothers and sisters here, 
What's my posture? When I engage with the saints of CBC, what's my tone? How do I come across? Maybe I don't mean to come across a certain way, but I come across a certain way and I need to assess some things. When I engage with my brothers and sisters here at the church, what's my goal? What am I trying to accomplish? Here's one. If you sit here today and you know some things, when I interact and engage with my brothers and sisters here, am I trying to help them be conformed to Christ's image or am I trying to conform others to my image? It's a real question. And I don't mean imitate me as I imitate Christ stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. Conformity to the image of Christ is what matters. But we often, we get really worked up in trying to conform others, frankly, to our own image. That's how we do. Ask yourself, am I prone to look down on others as those who just clearly don't get it like I get it? Am I prone to resent my brothers and sisters because they don't see things as I see things? Ask yourself, I'm about to use an old word, just heads up. What do I want the tincture of my conversations and relationships to be? What do I want the thing that kind of colors and flavors all of my relationships, colors and flavors all of my conversations, what do I want that to be? It's a good question. When my brothers and sisters think of their interactions with me, what do I want them to think? How do I want them to feel? Do I want them to feel shot at, scrutinized, belittled? Or do I want them to feel loved, known, cared for, understood? All of the things that I've just been driving at and asking questions about are related to being a mature Christian. Let's talk about immaturity for a minute. I said this earlier, but I want to say it again. Having convictions, having scruples, you know, you, that's an old word too, but you know what it means. Having scruples and strong convictions about every conceivable thing that a person might do in life is not a mark of maturity. We tend to think it is. I'm not saying don't be thoughtful. I'm not saying don't be purposeful. I'm not saying don't be intentional. But to have scruples over everything a Christian might do in life is not a mark of godliness. There are many decisions that we make that fall into the category of a wisdom call. These decisions matter, certainly, but they are not issues of fidelity to Christ. That's what we have to see. Have convictions all day long, but do not elevate things to the level of tests of fidelity to Christ that the Scripture has not been crystal clear about. Do not do that. But we do it all the time. Here, being able to discern the difference between something that is a legitimate spiritual or moral matter and then something that is a matter of wisdom and liberty, to be able to discern the difference is a mark of maturity. So ask yourself, all of us, 
Let's ask ourselves. Is everything an issue of faithfulness to Jesus in my mind? Like every wisdom call, every little thing that we ever do in life, is every single bit of it a test of fidelity to Christ and a test of orthodoxy in my mind? If it is, beloved, we will have a hard time living with ourselves or certainly with other people. Ask ourselves, let's, when it comes to matters of wisdom and conscience, am I quick to think that others are in sin when they don't see things like I see them? Am I quick to think that others are in sin when they don't think like I think on matters of wisdom and conscience? Ask ourselves, what are ways that I am prone to put myself in a place of judgment over fellow saints? Last comments here, just for all of us in the room. Here is what we naturally tend to do. Those of us who have a robust understanding of Christian liberty and exercise our freedom tend to look down on those who don't. And those of us who do not rightly understand Christian liberty and therefore do not exercise our freedom judge those who do. This kind of casting shade both directions is not the pleasing aroma of a living sacrifice, which is what we're called to be. The Lord does not ask us or need us to play the role of the Holy Spirit in one another's lives in that way, right? So ask yourself, are there ways in which I try to do that? And if the answer to those questions is yes, may we assess ourselves. Second piece of application, further application and pastoral comment. This is important over the long term. To engage in head-on debate over matters is not often the best approach. To engage in head-on debate over matters is often not the best approach. Let me explain what I mean. Again, do not hear what I am not saying. I am not talking about acute matters of demonstrable or grievous sin. There's church discipline for that. Okay? That is not what we're talking about. So here's, I'm talking about wisdom matters and matters of conscience and how we tend to just go in. This is our posture. Because we're serious-minded, we care. The motivations are good, right? But here's how it goes. I'm observing my brother or sister's life. This over here, that doesn't seem good. I'm going to confront the thing, and I am going to say it all. That's how we operate. Not helpful, generally speaking. Hear this. Patience over the long haul Trusting the internal work of the Spirit of God in the saints. Trusting the ministry of the Spirit through the means of grace. And trusting the fellowship of the saints is far better. Patience over the long term. Trusting the internal ministry of the Spirit in the saints. Trusting the ministry of the Spirit through the means of grace here. And trusting the fellowship of the saints, life together over the long term, is a far better way to go about it. To push people too hard, too quickly, is not the way. Pushing hard and going in tends to injure and alienate people. 
And of course, we, we do this. It's like, well, we're Christians. Our righteousness is found in Christ. And so we ought to be able to just be breathtakingly direct in every scenario and just say it. Yes and no. Wisdom is required. Patience and mercy and gentleness are also a calling of the saints. And we speak the truth in love, right? Going in, going too hard, too quick, tends to introduce opportunity for division. You want a divided church? You want church splits? Just do this. Go in real hard, real quick on every matter of wisdom and conscience. Split any church. Going too hard, too quick. Going in all at once. Second time we've ever grabbed coffee and I'm just going to say it all to you. Can erode trust and safety amongst church members. So when we point out error, brothers and sisters, which we should do, hear me, we should point out error. Point out error in my life, please. But we do it with grace and charity. We do it with humility. And we don't say everything at once. Very few of us are equipped to hear everything at one time. Be prepared to slow drip. This is a phrase the pastors use all the time. We talk about slow dripping things. Be prepared to slow drip stuff for a while. I mean, years if necessary. And if we take this approach, I promise, if we take this approach, we will look up in three years or five or ten, and we will realize, man, a lot has changed about me, about her, about him, about us. Why is that? It's because the Lord will have done his work and the Lord will have done his ministry in and through those means that we have considered. It's a better way. Third piece of additional application and pastoral comment. These are just a few words of important clarification. I don't want to be misunderstood. So we are to seek to grow in knowledge and understanding. Amen. And there are plenty of places in the New Testament where the apostles rebuke the saints for being ignorant of the will and word of God. Amen. We should strive to grow in our knowledge and our understanding. We should strive to grow in our understanding and our grasp of God's revealed will in his word. Paul's point in our text is to convey simply this, that anyone who sincerely trusts Christ and has regard and reverence for him should be received as his disciple. May that be true of us. In no way does Paul indicate that the differing views of saints in question are equally well-founded. In no way does he indicate that, but that is not the point. The principle that Paul is laying out is that saints who have differing views on matters of wisdom and conduct are just that, all saints. brothers and sisters in the Lord, all. We're all seeking to live in a way that honors him. And as the Lord is patient, gentle, and gracious to us, so we should be toward each other. That's the takeaway. Part three, our conclusion. I said at the outset in the introduction that bigger things are at stake when it comes to conversations about wisdom and matters of conscience and conduct. Sadly, when we today talk about Christian liberty, the conversation is reduced to debates over what Christians can do and can't do and what we should do and shouldn't do. That's the only way we ever talk about Christian liberty. 
eating, drinking, media, voting, schooling. Now, God willing, there will be content in next week's message about how we aim to roll with respect to issues of conscience here at this church. So we're going to aim to speak to some of that. It's not that that is unimportant, but Christian liberty, Christian freedom is way bigger than matters of wisdom. We confessed it earlier. I trust you saw it. So here's the thing. When we are overly restrictive on the consciences of other saints, we are actually undermining the liberty that Christ has purchased for us all. What is that liberty that he has purchased for us? Glad you asked. And again, as you listen to me talk, believer or unbeliever as you sit here today, Everything that I'm about to say, Jesus has definitively accomplished it. It's over. The work is done. And he invites sinners come to him. Whether that is for the first time or whether that is for the 10,000th time that we come to him, that's his invitation. So when you hear about what he's done for us, may that be what's stirred up in your heart. I'm going to go to him. I will arise and go to Jesus, and he will embrace me in his arms. We sung it earlier. If your heart is affected and pulled, cast yourself on Christ. Here we go. What is Christian liberty? What has he won for us? First, he has won, purchased for us liberty from the guilt of sin. Do you ever feel guilty? Anybody in here with a guilt complex? Walk around with a bunch of guilt and shame, just weighing you down all the time? Come guilty ones, weighed down with sin and hide away in the love of your Savior. You ever feel like Adam and Eve in the garden? You remember this, as soon as sin had entered the world and God is walking through the garden, their loving creator, the one who knew them intimately and they knew him, it was... Joy inexpressible, he comes walking through the garden and they are shamed. Not worthy. I'm afraid of him. I've got to cover myself. You ever feel like that? I don't know that I can. He says to approach him in prayer, but I don't know. Christ took all of our guilt and all of our shame upon himself And he paid for it in full. It no longer exists. It was buried in his tomb. He's won for us freedom from the guilt of sin. That's not all. He has purchased for us freedom and liberty from the wrath of God. If you sit here today, as I often feel, and you're like, you know, at the end of this whole thing, if the Lord were to look at me and say, Wrath is your portion. I would say, you're not wrong to do it. You are not wrong to damn me. I deserve that. If you feel that way because of the reality of your sin and imperfection and that you don't live for him, that you don't love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you don't love your neighbor as yourself, and you know that he would be right and just and good to crush a sinner like you. If you know that, Take heart. 
that because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have not been destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation in Jesus. It's what he's done for us. What else has he purchased for us? He has purchased for us liberty and freedom from the curse and condemnation of the law. Are you weary? Heavy laden. As you consider God's standard and the yoke, it's like, I can't, I can't carry that. I never will meet that standard. Then, beloved, cast yourself on the one who perfectly kept it every moment of his life. Who is your representative? Who is your righteousness? What else did he win for us, though? Christ has secured liberty and freedom from bondage to Satan. Oh, the great adversary. We always make one of two mistakes in the church, right? We either act like Satan doesn't exist or we act like he's more powerful than God. Let's not do either one. He is the great adversary, the great enemy of God's people. He is sinister and manipulative and shrewd and powerful. But we rejoice that just like David, when he defeated Goliath and cut his head off, that Christ, the great champion of the people of God, has bound that strong man and plundered his goods once and for all time. He does not win. You remember how Christ defeated him in his temptation, how Satan waited for an opportune time after that temptation was over. And as shrewd and calculating as the evil one is, did he know that he was going to have his head crushed when Jesus died on that cross? And we know at the end of it all, Jesus has risen triumphant, victorious over Satan and hell. And the evil one, Satan himself, the serpent, who is the devil, will be thrown into the lake of fire at the end. Jesus has won that for us. Freedom from bondage to the evil one. What else? He has won for us freedom and liberty from the fear of the grave. You afraid to die? Is death harrowing in your mind and heart? If you've been around the death of a loved one, it's real, it's heavy. You don't forget it. The reality of death always just kind of hangs out here for us, creatures who were not made to die. But since the children partake of flesh and blood, Jesus partook of the same thing. Why? So that through death, he might conquer the one who has the power of death, so that we wouldn't have to be subject to lifelong slavery, the fear of the grave. Come, thou rod of Jesse, free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depth of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. We bore the image of the man of dust, but we will bear the image of the man of heaven, says Paul. We'll be like him. Death, where is your victory? And grave, where is your sting? It's gone. Now, death for us now is harrowing and is frightening, but we know that our Redeemer lives. And we believe that he will again stand on the earth with us and that we will see him, not with other, but with these very own eyes. That's the hope. Christ has won that for us. Christ has won liberty and freedom from the dominion of sin. Here's one. Do you ever get weary of battling the corruption of your flesh? 
Does that ever feel exhausting and discouraging? I'm always wanting to do things that are wrong. I don't want to be like this. Do you feel that way? Do you ever get weary, here we go, of fighting for joy? It's hard to be joyful sometimes. Does that ever wear you out? Beloved, because of Jesus, there will come a day when all of those battles will be over. We will know nothing but joy. Joy will be our natural state forever. We will not be able to sin, nor will we ever even want to. This is because the end is better than the beginning, because we have gained more in Christ than we lost in Adam. Fear and anxiety of all kinds. He's won freedom for us. Do you feel like you live life waiting for the other shoe to drop? Yeah, it's going well today, but I know tomorrow or next week or next year, it's going to be bad. Do you live that way? I do. Do you wait for things to change for the worse? Beloved, there's coming a day when other shoes will never drop. And there's coming a day when nothing will ever change for the worse. When no sorrow or pain will ever be lurking around the corner. And when heartbreak and devastation is never coming down the pike. That day is coming. And Christ has won that for us. Lastly, I know need to need to land this thing. Christ has freed us from slavery of every kind. He has freed us from slavery of every kind. You realize that every world religion is a form of slavery. And you realize that every distortion of Christianity is as well. Consider it. Keep your fasts, give your alms, pray your prayers, make your pilgrimages, and maybe Allah will be merciful. That is slavery. Consider this. Do your penance. Get as much grace as you can from the sacraments. Cooperate with God and your salvation, and then we'll see. And there's purgatory for all the rest of it that needs to be cleaned up. That's slavery. Here's another one. A little closer to home. Make a decision. Transform your life. If you haven't done well enough, you should be afraid. That's slavery. No, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we call God Father, no longer our judge. He says to us, here's his word. Here's his word. He says, child, you have a new name. You have a new inheritance. You have a new status. And you have access to the throne of grace. And so come boldly and ask for mercy in your time of need. That's his word. The sure provisions of my God attend me all my days. Oh, may your house be my abode and all my work be praise. Here would I find a settled rest while others go and come. No more a stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. This is the freedom that Christ has won. Let's live in light of it, and let's love one another in it, and now let's pray.